This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Reed Pence. This week, autism and substance abuse. They said to me, you know, you, you're just really lucky that you're not dead. And I think that was the moment when I decided that I really wanted to change. I really wanted to go to rehab. Sometimes drinking to cope when Radio Health Journal returns. I'm Nancy Benson, host of Radio Health Journal. If you enjoy listening to Radio Health Journal, you'll also like our sister show, Viewpoints, which covers a wide array of topics from education to history to the environment. Here's a preview of what they're covering this week on Viewpoints. So I try to give the Rangers their due, talk about their heroism. But on the other hand, I want to talk about some of the atrocities, some of the misbehavior some of the things they did that they should not have done. Examining the Texas Rangers of the past, then. The world now knows what I did today, so why do I have to write about it in my own personal space? The evolution of social media into an online public diary. I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. Listen to Viewpoints on your favorite radio station and subscribe and listen to shows anytime on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. People on the autism spectrum find it difficult to process sensory information. Noises and sights may be startling to them, and interaction with people may be very uncomfortable. There are particular challenges to people with autism that make the outside world more difficult to navigate. So that would be they have sensory issues, such as noises might seem louder to somebody with autism or lights brighter. That's Elizabeth Kuhnreiter, clinical instructor at the University of North Carolina Wakebrook Addiction Treatment Center in Raleigh and co-author of the book Drinking, Drug Use, and Addiction in the Autism Community. There are also social and communication challenges. Communication, literally some people with autism don't speak verbally. Sometimes there's hard to understand other people, their tone of voice or the way they're communicating may be misread by somebody with autism. So the subtle social cues that neurotypical individuals might pick up on, somebody with autism may not. One of the things I remember very clearly from my childhood is being extremely clumsy. Uh, my parents commenting on it, knocking things over, not being very good at judging my body where it was in sort of space, thinking I had more room than I did, so very poor spatial awareness. Matthew Tinsley always knew he was different. Eventually, he was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, a form of autism, but not until he was an adult. I had, although I wouldn't call this a problem, I mean, I had some very specific special interests in different subjects, which lasted for a, quite a while. I had a very good memory, which was unusually good for dates and facts and figures. Not particularly good at eye contact. I had to suffer terribly and always have, and this is the main thing, but from anxiety all my life. I went through a phase when I even took my mother, who's been prescribed anti-anxiety medication. I took her anti-anxiety medication just to get through the day to go to school. Not every day, but quite a lot. People with autism may try various ways to cope. Some experts say their interest in things rather than people is a coping mechanism. Tinsley's self-medication is also apparently not unusual. His mother's medications were just the start. When I was 18, I discovered basically alcohol when I went to um, university to study, or 19, I think it was, when I went to university. And when I started drinking, I found that it really helped me fit in. And so the anxiety went away. 
I could join in with other people in social situations, which I normally found really difficult because of the anxiety. I say this to people, I know it sounds terrible and I shouldn't really say this, but alcohol worked for me for a long time. Tinsley is co-author of a book on this phenomenon titled Asperger's Syndrome and Alcohol, Drinking to Cope. Kuhnreiter says the connection is backed by a study done in Sweden, which found that people with autism are twice as likely as others to develop a substance abuse disorder. They didn't hone in in that study specifically on the reasons, but they suspected, and I suspect, that a lot of it has to do with people with autism have very high rates of anxiety and depression and often ADHD as well, and those are risk factors for developing a substance use disorder. So it would stand to reason that if somebody has a great deal of anxiety and depression and or ADHD, that they might indeed drink or use drugs to cope with the symptoms of that. It's hard to believe looking back now, but I mean, I used to drink as it got more and more severe, but in fact, it helped me cope. And I believe it helped me hold down the jobs that I did. Again, it's a different culture now from what it was 20 years ago, but I used to drink you know, when I got up in the morning, I'd drink at lunchtime and I'd drink on the way home. I was still drinking when I was actually watching it. There was a television program on and I overheard somebody describing the symptoms or the criteria rather for Asperger's syndrome. And sort of as they went through the things saying like special interest, great memory, clumsy different things like this. I said, that sounds, really sounds like me. However, Kuhnreiter says many family members of people with autism wouldn't ever dream of having them tested for substance abuse. One job coach or a vocational counselor with people with autism assumed there was no problem and so would send them off to jobs where they were drug tested and indeed they would test positive. And that was their wake-up call that in fact this might be an issue. And so rather than assuming it's not an issue, I think the biggest impact we can make right now is to assume it may be one and to start screening the way people might screen in doctor's offices for people who have anxiety or depression or other diagnoses. But why would family and friends of those with autism be so sure they'd be immune to using drugs or alcohol? Kuhnreiter says it's because of their autistic characteristics, their acute senses, and social isolation. People thought that autism was a protective factor, in fact. The sensory issues would lead somebody with autism, say, not to enjoy the taste of alcohol or not like the feel of a needle or could tolerate a substance going up their nose. But in fact, those protective factors don't seem to be mitigating somebody's use. I think people thought the social challenges, not knowing people, would prevent somebody to go be able to access substances or go to a party. And even those sensory issues, again, at a party, the noise, the sound, the smell may be too much for somebody with autism. But in fact, those aren't no longer protective factors. It appears that people with autism have been able to access drugs and alcohol freely and are using them more than the general population. That stuns some family members, especially since many people with autism are often devoted rule followers. Anything that might be illegal or illicit would be unthinkable to touch or even experience, go near it. There was one parent who said that her child would never touch alcohol or even a bottle that alcohol had been in because it was frightening to them. It was bad. They saw it as something negative and the same with perhaps cigarettes or other substances. And I believe that 
families truly believe the rule following behaviors, the sensory sensitivities, the social and communication challenges would put their child in a position where they really don't have to worry about substance use disorder. I think a lot of parents feel my child is okay, they're safe, they would never touch it, they're, it would never cross their minds. Kuhnreiter says not only are those factors not protective, the ways that life and school are often structured today for people with autism may lead them to ultimately need more coping mechanisms than normal. K through 12, people with autism get services and there's an IEP usually, which is called an individual education plan. And they're people very attentive to their needs, one hopes, and they're addressed in the school setting. And and that could be peer relationships, that they're not getting along with their classmates or their classmates are ignoring them and so forth. Protections are put into place for the person with autism to receive services and receive supports for those issues, as well as academic issues. Once they graduate, all those services pretty much disappear. Sometimes in college, they may get some if they declare with disability services, but usually not the peer part. People with autism, particularly adults, after school services have ended and school is more or less ended for them, they don't socialize very much at all. And they're more alienated, and that might also lead to somebody to use substances or abuse them. Now that we know autism isn't protective against substance abuse, Kuhnreiter says it may provoke difficult but necessary questions of just what might increase the risk of drug and alcohol use. Mainstreaming in school, for example. Wanting to be included with their peers, like any young adult or teenager, may experiment with drugs in order to be accepted. Or sometimes if they felt like maybe a crowd that felt the same way as them, that felt maybe they weren't really fitting in quite properly, they might reach out to drugs or alcohol to sort of fit in. Having access to drugs or alcohol would increase because they're now peer relationships. They're involved with different groups. They're going to the games. They're going to parties. And so now there's increased potential to access drugs or alcohol, whereas in the past, if people were isolated, maybe people thought they didn't have the wherewithal to know how to access drugs or alcohol. And I have to say that certain drugs, particularly opioids, are much more accessible than they used to be. But is it wrong to use alcohol or drugs as a coping mechanism if it's the only way to survive and if it's not out of control? Kuhnreiter says that's a good question. If somebody finds, like any of us, if we're finding that alcohol helps in a social situation, I think most neurotypical people would say, why not have a drink if you're stressed out in a certain situation and it will help you relax. And of course, I would advocate for anybody to do that if they could moderate it. I think where we may get into problems is twofold. One is that if you have to have it, to be in a social situation, that might be a little different. If you're able to monitor it and keep it one drink or two drinks, no harm done. I think where the problems come in is if it becomes debilitating, if your quality of life is reduced by it, when it becomes physically addictive and that you have to have it, then we're going into a different territory. Kuhnreiter says she's aware of one person who was diagnosed with autism later in life who said alcohol was essential to him. He described wine as, I believe I'm paraphrasing here, but as a as if a central solvent had been introduced into his body chemistry that had been missing. And I feel like 
understandable than if he felt that he could lead a life that was worth living by drinking, then by all means, he should drink. I only have issues if it's interfering with life, if one has to drink in order to live life. That's how it became for Tinsley. He says alcohol enabled him to maintain relationships with people, which allowed him to keep his job. But it was killing him. They said to me, you know, you're just really lucky that you're not dead. And I think that was the moment when I decided that I really wanted to change. I really wanted to go to rehab. I've often said to people when they ask me, how did you stop drinking when you were drinking so much? I mean, I was drinking up to three litres of gin in a day at the very end. And that's the one that nearly killed me with the alcohol poisoning. I say 50% of it was the therapy I got, the cognitive behavioural therapy. And I think 50% of it is knowing now why I struggle with so many things and why I had the problems I had. And also, the self-knowledge is just the key. When people say to me, what difference does having a diagnosis make? I say, once you know who you are and why you're having the problems you're having, and then it's not your fault and you feel like you're not trying, that goes away. Kuhnreiter says the first essential step is recognizing that people with autism are just as likely, or even more likely than others, to have a substance abuse issue. She says far too many family members still believe that autism prevents people from trying drugs or alcohol, when in reality, it's just the opposite. It may attract. I'm Reed Pence. Coming up next week on Radio Health Journal. You want to say to the person, or sometimes there's an instinct to say, well, why can't you just eat? But for that person, the behavior is a coping mechanism. It's a way of dealing with deeper issues. People who are addicted to clean eating. Then summertime is tick season, and they can cause more harm than you think. If you have tick paralysis and the tick is not removed, death is possible. All that and more on Radio Health Journal. And that's Radio Health Journal for this week. Radio Health Journal is a production of MediaTracks Communications. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more. And check Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify for a library of past programs. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and information about our guests at RadioHealthJournal.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Radio Health Journal.